Romans 5. Could you just give me a page there, Danny? What's that? Uh, 1648. 1648. Page 1648. I'm just going to read to you the first five verses of this chapter. And this is, again, a standalone thing. It's not part of the series that we've been doing, which is a Sermon on the Mount. We're taking a little break from there, and then we'll hit it hard again over the summer and into September, I anticipate. But I wanted just to address this as a one-off, and I, I trust it will be helpful to many of you. Maybe, if not only now, but certainly into the future, it's very important that we have a full understanding of what God is up to in suffering in our lives and to prepare us. So let me read to you the first five verses of Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, that's language that, imply, that basically sums up what it means to become a Christian, that God changes your status that there's a legal transference of your guilt onto Jesus and his goodness, his righteousness onto you. And that's what it means to be, have faith in Christ. He took your punishment on the cross. And then to become a Christian is to be justified. It means you do not have to earn your acceptance before God. It means it's given to you as a gift. It's an extraordinary thing, often totally misunderstood about Christianity, but absolutely critical, absolutely central to everything we believe and teach. We have been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You were an enemy of God and now he's made you his friend. That's what it also means to become a Christian. We have peace with God. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, we have a bright future. Our faith is for now which means to be in grace, to enjoy the grace of God now. But it is also the hope of glory. It's hope that goes beyond death. It's hope that takes away the sting or the fear of death and gives you the promise of something much better than what you might otherwise anticipate. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It ought to somehow surprise and shock us what Paul says there, because he says we rejoice in our sufferings. That a Christian is somebody who actually can experience all suffering of life with an, a degree of joy, a degree of rejoicing. And that's a confusing thing, isn't it? But it's also a mark of a Christian. He's not saying here, writing here or describing here really special, extraordinary Christians. He's just talking about normal, average, Joe Bloggs Christians. And he's saying, somehow... What we have enables us to face life as it is and all its frustrations and sufferings and have joy. And that's a mark of what it means to be a Christian. Now, obviously, just to say positively that that is something that's a message to us who who recognize that we are Christians. We're disciples of Jesus. And you're going to gain something by what we say today. It means that we have the resources to deal with all the circumstances of life through Christ. Negatively, it also means that there's a question, isn't there, for those of us who, are not, who don't know Jesus, who are not, would not call ourselves Christians, wouldn't say we know God. 
there's a question there about how you can ever have the resources to face suffering. If you are alone in the universe, what hope do you have? And I think that's an important question you need to consider today as we think about what the Bible has to say about suffering. If you are a product of a random accident or chance, if you were not created, if you were not made with a purpose, then there is no purpose to your experiences. And the sufferings you go through are as random as the joys you experience and just as meaningless. The Christian doesn't believe that. The Christian is a person who recognizes that everything that we go through is ordained by God. And so while we don't have a full explanation for the specifics of our experiences, why this suffering in particular, we do have the resources to draw on to know that God is good and that he has a purpose in it. And therefore, Paul says, we rejoice. You could also translate it that we boast, that we glory, kind of revel, we dance around in our sufferings. It's weird, isn't it? Really weird language. He's not talking here as a theorist, as we'll explore in a couple of minutes. He's talking as someone who knew from experience um, the full extent of what this means in practice. We rejoice in it. Why? Because of what we know. Because of what we know that suffering can do in our lives, which is what we're going to explore today. And he gives us four words. He talks about suffering, endurance, character, and hope. And I want us to meditate on that um, today. And I I want to say in all seriousness that a verse like this can quite literally save your life. Literally. In 1989, um, we woke up on Easter Sunday. I was six years old. I'm 32 now. I was six years old. Just let you know, because I know I'll lose some of you doing the maths when I say. I was six, and... um, (laughs) And uh, we woke up on Easter Sunday. My dad had just returned from uh, India. He'd been, he was a, a, he's, he's a preacher, a pastor like me, and he'd been visiting some churches over there. And he returned, and he'd caught a food poisoning, which somehow had triggered pancreatitis. And it was about a one in a million chance of that actually happening, because usually they're not related, but in his case it did. Pancreatitis is a life-threatening disease. Your pancreas, his pancreas had exploded, all the enzymes pour into your gut, into your abdominal cavity, and start digesting your body. So it's very, very painful. And this was acute, which means it's very dangerous as well. And he was rushed to hospital, intensive care. And what began was um, a, a six-month journey uh, where he lost about half of his, or a third to half of his body weight. And, um, and he, he, he was on the brink of death for a very long time. Six months in hospital. Um, before he returned home. And my mum had to take care of three boys, a nine-year-old, six-year-old, and a three-year-old. Um, myself and Joshua are both here today. Actually, my mum's here today. You can go say hi to her afterwards and just <laughs> pat her on the back and say, well done, Ruth. But um, she went through you know, the closest thing to hell um, that, that you can go through, I think, um, facing the daily possibility that my dad might die and meanwhile, having to carry all the responsibilities that she carried. And at the darkest moments of that, I have a couple of recollections of, you know, just some scant memories of the time. 
But I do remember going to hospital and seeing my dad in the hospital bed and all the tubes in the nose, in his nose, and he, he, was, he was wasting away. His body was very, very thin. And my mom, understandably, was struggling in profound way. She's an emotional person with the best of times, and this was the worst of times. And when she would go and see dad, sometimes he could hardly speak, and he was obviously very uncomfortable, but he would say to her three words to encourage her, and they were the words, dignify the trial. And he learned this little phrase from his predecessor, where he now is a minister, at Westminster Chapel, a man called R.T. Kendall. And it's R.T.'s way of trying to summarize the biblical teaching on suffering. In a way, it's a neat summary of these verses that we're looking at today. Dignify the trial. Not in a stoical sense, but in the sense that God wants you to understand what it means to rejoice through suffering and to understand that he has a purpose, that it is a trial. You can only call it a trial if you think that it has been inflicted upon you intentionally by a person who has a purpose behind it. Dignify the trial. And that little phrase helped my mom and helped my dad when they may have given in to despair. And despair can very quickly descend into much darker places. I think in a very real way, the hope that dad had got him through the illness, through the sickness, and he made a recovery, an extraordinary recovery. In the same way, these verses can have that kind of an effect. Perhaps you're not experiencing much suffering now. My wife and I had one of the happiest weeks of our lives. Tim and Katie just got married. Praise God, it's awesome. But we, are, we will all face suffering, won't we? And what will you have to draw on in those times? I want us then to meditate on these four words that Paul uses here because I think it will give you the ammunition or the fuel or whatever you want to describe it for life he says first of all that we rejoice in our sufferings this word suffering means it is it's related to it has it carries this idea in the original of pressure it means that as a person you are experiencing profound pressure on your soul You may have been through suffering and you know that that word pressure is a very apt description for what it means to be, to be enduring suffering. You may not feel that you can take the pressure for much longer. And Paul, as I said, wasn't speaking as a theorist. He had personally experienced suffering in all kinds of ways. And I just want to give you some of the examples of the kinds of sufferings that he had in mind when he was writing these words to ordinary Christians like you and me. First of all, I think he would have been talking about physical sickness. It's hard when you're healthy to fully understand what an effect physical sickness has upon you. But the minute that you are sick, it's all you can think about, isn't it? And you dream of being healthy again. And Paul himself knew what it was to experience suffering through sickness. He talks about in 2 Corinthians 11, or 12 actually, an experience of 
of profound um, revelation when he was caught up, as he calls it, to the third heaven. And he, starts, he sees things that he never puts down on paper uh, when God shows him stuff. And he says, in order to stop me being conceited so that I wouldn't become proud because of these extraordinary experiences that I had, he says from verse 7, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. There's a lot of debate about what that is. He just calls it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It could have been an actual person who just really irritated him and constantly was a thorn in his side. Or it could have been um, experiences of persecution. He talks about those often. But I think a lot of most people agree that he probably was experiencing some kind of sickness. Maybe something recurring like a really bad migraines. He certainly had really bad eyesight, and we, we know about that from his other letters. And as he got older, his eyes stopped working, and he had to have secretaries to write his letters for them, him as he dictated. He experienced sickness and suffering in his health. And isn't it the case that it can be a, a life-dominating thing? I don't know that all of us are healthy. We certainly won't remain healthy all of our lives. That is a guarantee. And that is certainly in mind, sickness. Another thing is that he would have had in mind is persecution. Paul was an uncompromising, bold preacher who would go into towns and sometimes elicit rioting because he would, was telling people that Jesus is the Son of God and, and the only Savior. And people hated it. They hated him. He often would experience rioting from his own people. He was a Jew. The Jews often would react to him quite negatively. And then sometimes it would stir it up among the other population in the towns. And he talks about, he lists his sufferings as, as a badge of honor. I once heard um, Brother Yun, a Chinese man who, from mainland China who got saved in a remarkable way and has endured long prison sentences and beatings and all kinds of things. And if, he takes, uh, if you see him without his shirt on, his body is covered in scars. Well, Paul was one of these guys who experienced... Incredible suffering. Just in the previous chapter in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about being whipped. He talks about being shipwrecked. He talks about being beaten with rods and being stoned. I mean, this is, this is a religious punishment for blasphemy. And he talks about how people sometimes would stone him and he managed to survive it. We can read about that in Acts. He talks about being on da- in danger as he journeyed from place to place. You know, he didn't have easy jet, didn't have sort of Easy travel. He didn't have the Euro tunnel thing. What's it called? Um, none of that stuff. You went by foot and by sea, and you were in danger of being robbed at any point everywhere you went. And he was always in danger. He always felt like he was on the edge. And then he talks about his hardships and how he is often hungry and often exposed and cold, sleepless, hunger, thirst. All these things were inflicted on him. And you know, some of us can't even go without food for a single day without being really angry. And it dominates your mind. Well, this is suffering, isn't it? And Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice when I was being hounded by people who hated me. He also knew something about poverty. You know that because in Philippians 4, another one of his letters, he, he says how he'd learned the secret of contentment. Um, and he talks about in all circumstances. He says... Um, that he knows how to be brought low and he knows how to abound. So he knew what it was to have absolutely nothing. And we're not talking about nothing 
where you can go to your GP and get a referral to a food bank. You can take a box of food home and you'll, you'll never starve here. We're talking about absolutely nothing. No backup plan, no backstop. And Paul says, I knew in those circumstances the secret of how to be content. And there's, there's many of us in this room who struggle and wrestle with contentment just because we haven't owned our own property or because we haven't um, uh, got the job we want or the salary we want, all these things. And Paul says, you know, never mind all that. Try and learn contentment when, when you don't know if you're going to eat again. And Paul said, I'd learned contentment in these things. Rejoice in our sufferings. He knew loneliness. In 2 Timothy 4, he talks about, by the way, it's his last letter. He's in prison. He's soon going to be put to death. It's a, very, it's a letter that's full of pathos because you think, wow, this man changed the world. And there he is about to die an ignominious death at the hands of the authorities. And he talks about abandonment. He says how in being brought to trial, how people had abandoned him. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. So there he is being brought into court, and all of his friends, his disciples, the people who he he traveled with and journeyed with and preached with and ministered with, and the Christians that he'd seen saved from, from their pagan backgrounds, he said, At my defense, no one came to stand by me. They were all afraid. And when Paul's in court, he's there on his own. Loneliness is a profound source of suffering. It's a state which God says is not good to be alone. And I know that some of us feel the pangs of loneliness at times, the desire for companionship, the desire to know soulmates. Paul understood and wrote about the suffering of disappointment and delay back in Romans 4. And he, he, he describes how Abraham, Abraham, that great patriarch, how he'd been promised that he'd have a son and yet for decades it didn't happen. And anyone who's childless knows that this is a source of real pain. I know a few couples who have not been able to have children and it's an ache in their souls. And Abraham, it says, he, he hoped In hope, he believed against hope. He kept trusting God's word. But that is a form of suffering to wait and wait and wait. Not sure or being uncertain of when the things you hope for will come to pass. And maybe you understand something of that. The proverb says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That when your hope is pushed back and delayed and delayed until it seems to be so far away from you that the things you desire will never come to pass, your heart can become sick. And let me add a last one. There's a suffering which every one of us will identify with, which is that of of temptation. We don't automatically put suffering and temptation in the same category. We think of them as separate things. We think temptation, after all, seems to come from inside us. Why would we cause suffering to ourselves? But it is a form of suffering to be in this body and frustrated with the lusts of the flesh, the desire to do all kinds of things which you know are wrong. And it says of Jesus in Hebrews 2 that he himself has suffered when tempted. Next time you are tempted, understand that you are experiencing a form of suffering 
which Jesus has gone through. He suffered when tempted. And Paul says, whatever your experience, and I know that some of you identify with some of those things or will do, and there are other things that I haven't mentioned. Whatever your experience, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. How is that possible? Well, let's read on. He says, because of what we know. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. There's our second word. When I thought about this, one of the questions that struck me is this. Why do we need endurance? Why do we need to suffer in order to learn endurance in order that we can suffer more? It's a little bit like people who train for long-distance events. Now, I understand the point of uh, being fit and healthy, as you can see. I am a specimen of fitness and healthiness. I understand that there's a purpose and that it brings a little more well-being and so on to, to, to work out and all that business. But one thing I can't quite get my head around is the point of long-distance endurance events. Because you, you don't have any real-world need for it. I don't need to run 26 miles, ever. Ever. Uh, the only circumstances in which that actually has any real-world value is if you are um, a, a nomad or a, a... I don't think any of you are, or a soldier, an elite soldier. You have to carry equipment for miles upon miles. I can understand that, okay, in a few callings in life, it's, there is some purpose in having endurance. Or if you were a messenger and somehow discovered email and you have to deliver things by hand rapidly. But these, these are not modern day experiences, are they? So why do people voluntarily train for endurance in order that they can run long distance races, in order that they can have more endurance? It just seems a totally circular and pointless thing to do, doesn't it? And so you might say, well, that applies here. If God just didn't inflict suffering upon us, we wouldn't need endurance. So why does he put suffering on us in order to give us this endurance, which we wouldn't need if he hadn't made us suffer in the first place? Well, I think the way I'd want us to understand and answer that is like this. It says about Jesus in Hebrews 12 that he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, he's the great physician, the great doctor who's working on your soul transforming you from the inside. And it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, endured the most profound suffering. He endured suffering for the joy that lay on the other side of that. And a verse before that, it says this, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is before us. So he links your endurance with that of Jesus. And says the reason, the motive, the goal for learning endurance in suffering is that you might become more like Jesus, your Savior. God's goal in your life is Christ-likeness. He wants you to look like Jesus. He wants it so that when people meet you, You have the purity, the compassion, the love, the depth of character that Jesus had. 
He wants to make you like Jesus. And Jesus learned endurance through suffering, so you also must learn endurance through suffering, that God would fill out and flesh out and enlarge your character and make you more like him. The reality is that you cannot develop this without suffering. That just like training for endurance thing, it is a muscle. Endurance is a muscle. And you must experience life in all its hardships to become more like Jesus. That there are dimensions of Christ-likeness that we cannot enter into unless we experience the things that he experienced. What happens then when we don't endure? Because as I reflect on my own life, and if you were honest with me about your lives, the reality is that God has put you through trials through which you have abysmally failed. You failed by not rejoicing in your sufferings, which Paul talks about. You failed by giving in to temptations. You failed by losing your trust in God, despairing. We've all done it, haven't we? What happens when we do? Well, we need to understand that when God puts us through these trials, you think about the purpose of exposing you to trials. The proverb says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. God puts you through fire, in other words, in order to expose what's inside of you. So when you have experienced suffering of any kind, And you have failed in that. God had a purpose. He was bringing out what was inside you, which you might not otherwise know about. One of the things that we discover about ourselves is our idolatries, the idols, the things that we depend upon in life that are not God. Suffering has a uniquely powerful capacity to expose the idols of the human heart. What is it that you run to the minute that you're unhappy? What is it that you seek refuge in when you are least content? You wouldn't know that that idol was in your heart unless God exposed you to the fire. So when we fail, there's a sense in which we can look back on our lives and understand that God had a purpose in that even. To expose and bring things to light. The crucible is for silver. The furnace is for gold. These precious metals need to be purified and so does your heart. The Lord tests hearts. But then you also take heart. You may have failed a thousand times, but God's purpose is still to produce this endurance in you. He wants to bring you to completion and perfection. Looking to Jesus, it says, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He didn't just save you, but he's also made you his own personal project. And you're a work in progress. And you may have failed countless times. Next time, Christ wants to make you more capable to endure. To have this joy which Paul's talking about. To rejoice in our sufferings. That brings us to our third word. He says that endurance, he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. This literally means, this word character literally is proven worth or testedness. Anybody who has not suffered in any capacity does not have proven worth. They may have worth, 
but it is not yet proven. It's not been put to the test. It's not been exposed. It's not, you don't know if it's there or not. If you were to imagine that you and I were to be conscripted into World War III and put onto the battle lines, I think one of the most terrifying things about conscription is that you are a novice and everyone around you is a novice as well. Wouldn't you much rather be fighting alongside some elite commandos, men who have proven worth? Or if you were training for some Olympic event like the rowing boat ones, whatever, <laughs> and there you are in the boat and you, you sit in this thing and the person you're training with says, yeah, I've been smashing it in the gym. But they've never actually sat in a boat in a competition. They don't have proven worth. They may have worth, we don't know yet. They don't have proven worth. That's what this word means, that endurance produces proven worth, this character, this testedness. And those who have suffered possess that. They possess something which those of us who haven't suffered do not possess. Paul talks a little bit about this. When he was writing to um, the Philippians, one of the churches in Philippi, he says how he wants to send Timothy, his protege, he wants to send Timothy, a sort of child in the Lord, to them to go and minister to them. He says he's going to encourage you. And these guys might be a bit cynical like, or a bit skeptical, like, we'd much rather Paul comes. Why do we have to have this, this boy with a squeaky voice come and talk to us? And Paul just wants to allay their fears from the get-go and says, you know, Timothy's proven worth, his character, How as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. So he says, all the things that I've experienced, Timothy's been through it all as well. He has proven worth. His suffering has put the stamp, the seal, upon the genuineness of his faith. He's he's already demonstrated that he has endurance. Now why does that matter, that you should have proven worth? It matters in two ways. It matters firstly because God knows it. I think it's nothing more important than when we go through suffering than to understand that God is watching. When you read the Bible, when you read the stories of the men and women of God, those whom God wanted to use, He exposed to extraordinary suffering. He tested their hearts. We already mentioned Abraham. We could spend all day mentioning the various people and the ways they suffered and how it gave them this proven worth. God loves to use people who have a proven capacity. Jesus would tell parables, wouldn't he, about faithfulness in small things. Why? So that God can lay upon you heavy things. He wants you to carry a load and to do it well and to do it with endurance and to prove your worth that you might carry a heavier load. And that's what suffering is about. This proven worth is something, first of all, that God ought to know in you, that He can look upon you and say, well done, you've been faithful, you've endured. But there's another dimension to this proven worth and it's that you might know that you have it that you might know that God has put within you a faith that can't be broken by the circumstances. And the most extraordinary men and women of God that I have met 
have been people who have suffered in ways that terrify me. I think about missionaries that I've met who would house refugees and converts from Muslim backgrounds and they had, had attempted assassinations on their lives. And in fact, one of these men who they'd seen come to faith in Jesus was blown up outside their house. And they're the most joyful people I have ever met. That is proven worth. And somehow their experiences in life have propelled them to greater acts of faith. Because now they know that what God has put inside them can last the distance. So they can take on greater exploits. They continue to be bold in in telling people about Jesus. Extraordinary people. And this brings us to our last word. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. We're happy about our sufferings. Why? Because of what we know. We know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character or proven worth. And then character produces hope. I don't think the the connection between these words is immediately obvious, so we need to understand what is going on here. How does character, this proven worth, produce hope in your life? Well, the answer is this. A little bit earlier, Paul's already talked about hope. He says in verse verse 2, he says, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But the hope that you enter into when you first become a Christian, whenever you meet somebody who's just become a Christian, often they experience deep Joy, even elation, even ecstasy. Not always, but often. Because they suddenly realize that they have a hope in eternity which they never had before. They never knew what would happen to them beyond death. They never knew the friendship of God. And suddenly they have hope and it changes their life. But the hope that they have is only built on the promises of God. Not that that is a lesser hope, but it's not been tested. It's not been put to test. And so as they then go through life and experience suffering... And their character is deepened. Their experience of God's faithfulness grows. Because now they do not only know faith in God based upon what he has said in his scriptures, which is where it begins. They also know faith in God because of tested, proven experience. And so hope gives birth to the experience of embracing suffering, which gives birth to deeper, more profound, more lasting hope. When you have suffered and you've gone through the trial and come out the other end and you've discovered that God is faithful, that God is true to his promises, that he says that he won't let you be without the things you need and he has provided for you. He says that he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear and he's rescued you in temptation. He says that he'll give you the words that you need when you're on trial, before people who are asking you questions about your faith, and he's done it, he's rescued you. When you've suffered in all the kinds of ways that we can imagine, and God has been there, and you have this proven character, this proven worth, and you know it, that God is there for you, that gives birth to more deep, more lasting, more enduring hope. Christians who have suffered for Jesus will very rarely fall away from him, because their hope 
doesn't weaken, they don't grow jaded, and they don't grow cynical. They grow more hopeful still. And there is a twinkle in their eye as they think about the joy that lies before them. We can think about Paul. There's a couple of times he talks about death in his letters. And on one occasion he says, I'm really torn. I don't know whether I want to die and go and be with Jesus or stay and help you guys out a little bit longer. And he says, I think I've still got fruitful work to do on earth, so I'd rather stay. But he says, he's genuinely torn. He thinks, I'd actually quite like to die right now because my hope has grown so much through the experience of suffering. I know Jesus more intimately. I know him more profoundly. And I want to be with him. Suffering can change your life and deepen your faith in ways that you never know or understand until you've been through it. And so, as you face the sufferings of life, friends, I want you to keep in mind these words of what God intends to do in you through those experiences. Are you facing anxiety? The fear of your circumstances? Are you facing loneliness? Are you facing hostility from people? Are you facing physical sickness or that of somebody in your family? Are you facing loss? Whatever you are facing, God wants you to rejoice in your sufferings, knowing what it can do in you. If you don't know God, if you would not call yourself a Christian, please dwell on these questions. Are you equipped for eternity? Are you even equipped for now? Are you equipped to face what life will throw at you? It's often the case that people don't realize their need for God when everything is good around them. They have all the friends they want. They have the career they want. They maybe have the spouse or the children they want. But when those things are stripped away from you and they will be picked away from you one by one, that is absolutely guaranteed. No one takes these things with them past the grave. And when they're stripped away from you in life, do you have the resources to face suffering? Do you know who to go to? It may be the case that you currently rely on a bunch of people. That when you experience suffering, there's certain people, individuals that you run to, and they're your go-to. What happens when those people are taken away from you? It's very hard to make a serious point when the air conditioner is having a pee. Eugene's going to catch it for some drink later. Um, Gandalf, is it Ian McKellen, is that right? I was reading in the paper the other day that he said that one thing that they don't tell you about old age is that all your friends start dying. I don't want to be morbid, but I am being. (laughs) To know God is to have the resources to face all of life's experiences. Because everything around you that you currently rely on will crumble eventually. It's not eternal. It's not solid. You can lean on it. The Bible says that there are certain things you lean on and they pierce your hand. 
The more you rely on the wrong things, the more they're found to be unreliable. But God is the only staff that you can rely upon. He's the shelter. He calls himself a high tower in the Psalms. The Psalms speak of finding shelter under the cover of his wings. Jesus talks about how you can build your life upon his words, and it's like building upon the rock. There are many houses on the coast of Britain which are built precariously close to the sea, and as the land erodes, the houses disappear, and so every possession that people own. And Jesus says, to build your life on my word is to have a life that cannot be moved by the experiences of life, the winds, the waves, the storms. Suffering is going to hit you. And at some point, it's going to hit you beyond what you think you can bear. Where will you have built your house at that point will determine what happens to you. But for us who know Jesus, we have a Savior who can rightly describe himself as the rock on which you build your life because he endured the suffering of the cross. And he understands your pain. And he understands every experience that you can go through. And he loves you. And he wants to strengthen you in it. Because he wants to cheer you on through it. To produce endurance and character and unbreakable hope in him. Let's pray. Father, you alone know what is going on in every life here and in our hearts, Lord. We conceal things from one another. We put on a brave face. But Lord, sometimes we feel stretched to breaking point. Sometimes it's not even our circumstances. It's just our unruly hearts, our emotions. And Father, as we come to you, Lord, we want to learn what it is to follow in Christ's footsteps and learn to endure through suffering. And not just to endure with gritted teeth and a stoical mindset, but Lord, to endure with rejoicing, knowing that you are working out your greater purposes in our lives. That you want to transform us. You want to make us like Jesus. And I pray that the comforting hand of the Father would draw near to each of us today. But also, Lord, that you'd put ballast in us to enable us to endure in the future the things that are yet to hit us. Lord, where there are people here, Lord, who feel called to lay down their lives in extraordinary sacrifice for you, I ask, Lord God, that you would give them deep set foundations, that you would dig deep and then pour in concrete, that they will be immovable because they are anchored to the rock that is the Son of God. We love you, Lord, and we want to rejoice in you. Amen. Amen.